If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Please be advised that the descriptions in this podcast are graphic. This is Chapter 4 of Blood and Truth, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Today, a split jury. I'm Leonora Lapeter Anton. This story is about a man who has served 42 years on Florida's death row. He says he's innocent. For more than two decades, he's been asking the state to allow for complete DNA tests of the evidence in his case. Florida keeps saying no. I'm trying to imagine the jury back in 1976 entering that room to decide Tommy Zickler's fate. They'd been coming for a month to the courthouse in Jacksonville, where the trial had been moved because of pretrial publicity in Orlando. There were nine women and three men, six blacks and six whites. Among them were four homemakers, a school librarian, a retired nurse, a bank secretary, a student, and a press operator. They'd just listened to more than 100 people testify over two weeks. The transcript of the trial runs for 3,000 pages. A bailiff wheeled in a huge cart with more than 200 pieces of evidence. Where do they start? How do they sort through all the complicated timelines and the contradictory statements? Here's what they did. The group elected a foreman, a black man who said he didn't need to deliberate. He'd made up his mind two weeks before. Another juror also professed Ziegler guilty. They took a vote and split right down the middle between those who thought Ziegler guilty and those who weren't sure. Yeah, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't remember believing him. That's Holly Kaysen, one of the jurors at the Ziegler trial. She was 27 that year, a bank secretary who was married with a six-year-old. When I interviewed her last year, she said she didn't remember a whole lot. It's been 42 years, after all, and she hadn't followed the case after serving on the jury. Kaysen recalls that after they began deliberations, she wasn't even allowed to speak to a bailiff. If she wanted water, she had to write a note. 
And when she got to her motel room after the jury was sequestered, they'd pulled the TV out of her room. She said Ziegler's case was complicated and interesting and brutal. As gruesome as it was, the autopsy, um, um, the coroner who testified, it was like an, a whole morning. I, I remember this because after he got done, they said, well, we're going to adjourn for lunch. And I was like, really? <laughs> you know, who wants to go eat now? Kaysen thought Ziegler was guilty. He seemed too detached when presented with the violence of his family's slayings. Well, I, I, he was like in his maybe 30s. Or I don't remember if he was mid-30s, but he was young. Uh, and he, he wasn't um, a big person, um, very slim, um, wore glasses, um, I think brown hair. I mean, you know, in a shirt and tie. I don't know if he had a coat on, but, you know, just, just like a regular guy. You know, he, he would take notes, but really never saw a lot of reaction on his face. He was like poker face. Kaysen said the blood spatter expert influenced her decision. Herb McDonald, the famous New York expert, had reviewed the scene at the furniture store weeks after the crime. He had mapped blood spatter in the store and said there was no doubt Ziegler was the killer. He had said Ziegler's shoe likely left a print near the bodies. In his report, he also questioned the absence of a blood trail from the back of the store, where Ziegler said he was shot, to the phone at the front of the store, where Ziegler called for help. And he questioned why May's clothes were in disarray. The significance of Mr. May's trousers and underpants being pulled down should be considered, he wrote in his report. If this was the act of a homosexual, could such an opinion be helpful in considering the kind of person who committed these crimes? He was a, called a blood splatter expert. I found that this particular uh, witness very interesting. There was something that he used, you know, like if you take, if you hit it like this, it's going to go so many feet and be... Uh, you know, the arc of the blood would... So witness testimony like that, um, where blood was found, um, contradicted, in my mind, contradicted Ziegler's own testimony. Kaysen also found Robert Egan, the prosecutor, impressive. I think he was um, very methodical in presenting the case. Uh, in calling uh, witnesses and entering um, evidence that was in sequence to what, how everything took place. He seemed um, like, uh, you know, Sam Waterston on, you know, one of these shows, just very, I think, I think he was pretty tall. I don't remember if he was really tall, but, um, an older gentleman, and he just seemed very um, capable. And there was just so much. I mean, they wheeled this cart in with all the stuff, um, the evidence that was entered. And it was in like a grocery cart or something like that. And, you know, this being a small room, there wasn't a whole lot of space. Um, but a lot of discussion about the evidence and the, and the, the witnesses 
and the and the testimony. I mean, it took us what, two and a half, almost three days to reach a decision. On the second day of deliberations, a juror named Irma Brickle didn't feel well, and the trial was delayed. She was treated by a nurse, received medication, and took a walk with a bailiff. Deliberations resumed and continued for eight hours, but for Brickle, the jury room was filled with intense hostility and intimidation. The white housewife discussed the case with another white juror, Peggy Dollinger, while they were sequestered at the hotel, according to an affidavit later filed with the court. Both agreed other jurors shouted at Brickle and called her names. I suppose it could even have come to actual violence, Dollinger said. Brickle was unable to keep any food down, unable to sleep, and fainted several times during the deliberations. She said some jurors exhibited racial bias against Ziegler. At one point, Brickle suggested they put Eunice Ziegler's clothes on a mannequin to look at the bloodstains. Another juror told her to try them on since she was the same size and she could get a feel for the situation. Brickle is no longer alive, but she described the jury room in a 1989 television interview. The program featured Ziegler's case and was called A Matter of Life and Death. Reese Schoenfeld, a producer of the show and co-founder of CNN and the Food Network, said we could use her interview on this podcast. Here's what she said about Judge Maurice Paul. Well, I felt like he had made up his mind before the case was over. On the third day of deliberations, Irma Brickle asked a bailiff if she could talk to Judge Paul. The judge and attorneys pondered what to do, afraid of a mistrial. They asked Brickle to write down her concerns. She said she was worried about numerous things, including the foreman's initial statement that he'd already made up his mind. But a juror had the right to render an opinion during deliberations. Paul wrote back, After consideration, it appears that there is no present need to have a conference. Thank you for bringing this matter to our attention. I tried to track down each of the Ziegler jurors. Most of them have died. Dollinger later became an advocate for Ziegler, arguing that she would have voted not guilty if she'd known all that came out later. She is now 89 years old and lives in an assisted living facility. Dollinger once acknowledged in an affidavit that another juror said she was not worried about personal responsibility for the verdict because she discussed the case with her minister, who had absolved her through a laying on of hands ritual. Another juror, James Roberts, was 20 years old at the time. He said he never regretted his decision. He did not want to be recorded for the podcast. He said he wasn't convinced that Ziegler's handyman, Edward Williams, was telling the truth. But he didn't believe the defense argument that multiple witnesses were lying. Terry Hadley, Ziegler's attorney, had made friends with the bailiffs. All of the bailiffs said, you don't have to worry, man, Tommy's not guilty. You're going to get a quick verdict, not guilty. And I've learned to fear bailiff's predictions because they're often inaccurate. But they're great guys. And so they were the ones kind of keeping us advised on what was going on. Here's Robert Egan, who prosecuted Tommy Ziegler. He's consistently defended the police investigation and the prosecution. He remembers Irma Brickle. I remember she was crazy. She was. She should never have been allowed on the jury. I should have had enough sense to kick her off because I don't know. She just seemed to be almost trying to think of the right word. 
I think it was more than she could handle. <laughs> I really think she was out of her element. I, I just remember that um, she, she, she kept pushing it away, get away. She didn't want to talk about it. She didn't want to talk about it. I don't think she was uh, strong enough to do it no matter how convincing the evidence was. After the jury broke for lunch, some noticed that Irma Brickle was pale. Soon, Judge Maurice Paul called the lawyers to the courtroom. He wanted to explain what had happened to Brickle. This is what he said to the lawyers, according to the transcript. Mrs. Brickle passed out dead. Well, not dead dead, but passed out. So they got her and said she was all right, and then in a minute, she did it again. She's tight as a tick. Paul sent a nurse in to ask Brickle if she was emotionally, physically, and mentally able to continue. Brickle relayed that she didn't need a doctor, but she wanted to discuss the pressure she was under in the jury room. One of the other jurors had said to her, if you could hurry up and make up your damn mind, we could get out of here. Paul decided that it was no more than goes on in any jury room where there are differences of opinion. In a stairway on the way back to the courtroom, Ziegler's lawyer, Terry Hadley, asked for a mistrial, citing juror misconduct. Upstairs, in his private chambers, Paul denied the request. At some point, though, unbeknownst to Hadley, Paul called Brickle's doctor. Here's how Irma Brickle described what happened next, again from the TV show. I got sort of sick, and they called the doctor, and he just sent some tablets and they turned out to be Valium. They fix you where you do not make a decision that you would normally make. Roberts, the fellow juror, said that Brickle floated to her chair after taking the medication. He remembered thinking that the case was destined for a mistrial. Brickle asked yet again to discuss the mechanics of how Ziegler could have killed his wife. A picture of Eunice sat in front of her. I can't figure out how he did it, Roberts recalled her saying. At one point, he said, he put an empty gun to Brickle's head and pulled the trigger to show her how Eunice Ziegler had been killed. After that, Brickle put her hands over her ears and her head on the table. Then she told the other jurors she would vote to convict. Ziegler's lawyers didn't know any of this. Today, Terry Hadley considers the judge's actions jury tampering. Remember, this jury was out for three days. And, uh, you know, frankly, we'd have had a hung jury if the judge hadn't agreed to get one of the jurors some dope. So and we, didn't know, we didn't know about that either. We just knew that there was something wrong, and then all of a sudden the lady was okay. She may have been given a Valium because of the way she was. I mean, she, <laughs> she wasn't shaking, but she was just uh, very intense. That's Egan, the prosecutor. Ultimately, Brickle felt badgered into accepting a guilty verdict. I was pressured in. I didn't just feel it. I was pressured into it. The jury deliberated for 17 hours and 20 minutes. Afterward, the jurors filed into the courtroom on that Friday, July 2nd, 1976. It was just two days before the nation's bicentennial celebration of the Declaration of Independence. None of the jurors looked toward the defense table. Hadley describes how he felt at that moment. That horrible sinking feeling. That just overwhelming, oh no, 
Because we had felt good. When that jury went out, we thought we had won the case. As the verdict was read, Siegler's face displayed nothing. His attorney was stunned. When you're defending someone who's innocent, and you believe with all your heart is innocent, everything's at stake. And doing anything but perfect, and nobody's perfect. Uh, and you lose, you look back, you know, with angst and horror, regret, which all of us who defend the Tommy do. Still, at that point, Ziegler's lawyers, family, and supporters were confident it would be straightened out. There would be appeals. It was going to be okay. Oh, he went down convinced that we would, we would prevail, especially since the judge was so clearly prejudiced against us. We thought that would show up. But it's amazing it doesn't show up on cold record like it does in the courtroom. I filed a notice that we were going to interview the jurors, which you're required to do. And uh, because we thought something funny had gone on with the jury. They're out, and, and they're out for days, and uh, then suddenly there's word there's something wrong with the juror, and then we don't know what, and then the next thing that we know, we got a verdict. So we wanted to find out what had happened. And uh, so we filed the appropriate notice with the court, and Judge Paul immediately entered a permanent injunction forbidding us to talk to any of the jurors. Again, unheard of. The same day that jurors returned a guilty verdict, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld Florida's death penalty law. Death by electrocution was legal again. Two weeks later, the jurors gathered again for Ziegler's sentencing. Judge Paul limited Ziegler's witnesses, so Hadley only called two people who testified to Ziegler's character. His pastor, the Reverend Faye Deshay of the First Baptist Church in Winter Garden, said Ziegler was kind, dependable, someone who often helped others. He was on the town beautification committee and served on the church's audiovisual aid committee, operating the church mixer for the Sunday morning broadcast, his wife always at his side. Next to testify was a psychiatrist who had evaluated Ziegler. He said Ziegler had been raised in an environment where he had been able to develop within himself tremendous self-control over his behavior in such a way that he did not express outward emotion. And Ziegler had been under the assumption that all he needed was his honesty and integrity to resolve his predicament. The psychiatrist said his evaluation failed to reveal the personality defects necessary to commit the crime. He thought Ziegler would in no way represent a threat to society if he was allowed to live. It took the jury 25 minutes to recommend life in prison. A juror named Mary Kelly once explained the decision to a newspaper reporter. They thought a life sentence was the better alternative because it was his word against the witnesses. Besides, she said, we all felt like the judge knew more about that sort of thing. What we were really hoping for was that Ziegler would break down and confess to take the pressure off us. But Ziegler's fate was still in the hands of the judge. Judge Paul called Brickle into his chambers before delivering the sentence. Their discussion was captured for the record by a court reporter. Brickle told him that she still felt Ziegler was innocent. My reasons don't seem to be important, or they weren't, she said. But you stated in open court that that was your verdict, the judge countered. I know I did, but I just couldn't take any more. 
At the end, I was pressured into it, she replied. That afternoon, Brickle and eight other jurors returned to the courtroom for the judge's decision. He overruled the jury and sent Ziegler to death row. Paul has also died, but years after the trial, he was asked to explain his decision. The laws of this state permit a sentence of death for premeditation, he said. The facts of this case require it. Inside the courtroom, on the day Paul delivered the sentence, Hadley, one of Ziegler's attorneys, stood there shocked. And uh, when the judge announced the death penalty, Irma Brickle screamed and ran out of the courtroom screaming. Oh, yeah. She fell apart. No, 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 and went running out. On the next episode of Blood and Truth. I was at Florida State Prison, and a friend sent me the article. And when I read the article, I said, whoa, you know, if, if this will convict a man, it will also clear a man. And I read that article twice, and then I wrote Terry Hadley and Vernon Davids, my two trial attorneys. And I told them, I said, I want this, and I want you to get me every damn thing you can find on DNA, because I'm going to be a DNA expert. Catch up with the earlier episodes of Blood and Truth on major hosting platforms. And if you like the series, please rate and review us on iTunes.